Hey Phil. Hey Laurie. Hey Benedict. Hey Phil. Hey. Hey. Oh, I'm really confused. Either way, listeners, right from the get go. <laughs> to the welcome to the Super Baby Bros in Movie Land podcast. We've invited Benedict to join us for the intro this week because we've got a couple of little extra news style tidbits to add. Uh, do I need to say what the Super Baby Bros show is? Someone said we needed to keep doing that. It's a film review show and just chatting about films is great stuff. So exciting. Well done, <laughs> Phil. Okay, we've got great films for you this week. I've been to see Their Finest, the World War II romance about a screenwriter. Phil, what have you seen? I've seen The Handmaiden, which came out in 2016, but has finally been released in UK cinemas. It's the next film from the guy who did Old Boy. Nice. And Benedict, what have you seen? I've seen a bizarre, low-key twist on the vampire film, The Transfiguration. Ooh, good, like it's all good stuff, isn't it? I'm excited about that. And we've got a new sort of mini-segment that I'm also quite excited about called, for the time being, Ask Benedict. <laughs> <laughs> we Listeners get in touch quite frequently with questions specifically directed at Benedict, who is our horror correspondent. And because Benedict only joins us when there's a horror film to review, what we do is we, we're going to group all those questions together and, and topics, and we're going to fire them all at Benedict uh, in a line. He's going to have to dodge your answer <laughs> each question that comes his way. So something to look forward to. You excited about that, Benedict? I am. A bit nervous. But yeah, looking forward to it. Don't be nervous. Our listeners are very kind. Yes, they are. That's very true. The lorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've got what we've been watching back again. Just one film each this week. Uh, we'll say what they are when we come to that. And your emails and tweets towards the end of the show. Lots of films, lots of fun. Let's get cracking. Well, no, no, you missed. Oh. <laughs> got oh. Benedict in the intro, Phil. Oh, well, uh, first here, patreon.com slash Bros. if you're interested in how you can support the show. And Benedict, you've got two pieces of news for us. Do you want to take the lead on this? I will. Uh, first piece of news, which is very, very exciting, is I am attending the Cannes Film Festival. What, what, what? What, what, what? Listeners, if you are a long-term listener, you'll very clearly remember our Yes We Can uh, campaign, which t- got a lot of talk and absolutely zero action. We never actually put it in place. <laughs> it was, we were naive and young. We didn't know what we were doing. We all enjoyed the idea very much. And the whole point was trying to persuade uh, so many people to say they wanted the Super Belly Bros at Cannes that they just have to let us in and get accredited. But Benedict is going to jump the gun for us. And well, how come you get to be there, Benedict? A uh, little university pass. Yeah, I've got lucky, I suppose. You've got very lucky. And are they going to be happy, the university, with you uh, feeding us little tidbits of info? Oh, of course. We're going to send them away the dictaphone. You'll be shoving it in directors' faces. That's about right. I will. That's the plan. <laughs> and you'll tell us what films you've seen, good ones to keep an eye on that are coming up and things like that. There's loads of films at Cannes, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, the hottest cast on the front line with reviews of all of the... Fancy French films. Nice. That's amazing. And uh, what is the other thing you've got for us? Coming up, uh, it's released on the 19th of May. There's a little British strange independent kind of sci-fi film called Spaceship. And I reviewed the film at the London F- Film Festival. And the director has got in contact and he'd like to do a little interview with the podcast. Oh, how about that? Wow, we're going up in the world and it's all because of Benedict. That's absolutely right. Well, listeners, we're going to put Benedict's interview with, what's the director's name? Alex Taylor. On the podcast uh, in the next couple of weeks at some point. And, well, that's all kinds of amazing things to look forward to right the way through the summer. How about that? That's a proper preview. That is a real big preview. But for now, let's get on with this show. Let's get cracking. All right, off we trot. Right, so we're going to review their finest, Phil. Great, yeah, I've brought along, um, well, this is Cumberland Sausage with Black Pepper and Sage. Well, what are you talking about? Tesco's finest, you know, Tesco's sausage, finest. sausage, yeah. What have you brought from... Phil, I think you've misunderstood. You see, the film isn't called Tesco's finest, although I would like to watch that film. It's called Their Finest. 
Yeah, Tesco's finest sausage. <laughs> yeah. This seems like a good idea when we say, let's get on the film. <laughs> Laurie Stark, come on, go. Uh, listeners, I went to see Their Finest this week. In fact, I didn't even go to see it. It got sent to me, unusually, because I just couldn't get to London in time. They very kindly sent me a screener to watch it. So I got to watch this from the comfort of my lovely reclining office chair. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, why? Why you don't you don't sound like you mean that? Well, it's just nice for summer. I have to traipse down to the local cinema to see these films. You just sit there on your your derriere and watch these films. Do I'm they? not going to lie; it was nice this time. I got to sit in my coffee and enjoy it in peace. It was very good. Anyway, re- listeners, you probably have heard one or two things about this movie already. If you've seen the trailers, then you will have seen a film that appears to be all about uh, how women played a part in the entertainment industry during the Second World War, and that that's more or less it. So, Catherine Cole, who is played by Gemma Arterton of Girl with All the Gifts and Quantum of Solace. What else she been in? Prince of Persia? She was in Prince of Persia. She was also in Clash of the Titans. There you go. Quite a big actress, British one. Uh, she plays this Welsh girl, Catherine Cole, who's in the big city with her husband, who's a penniless artist, a slightly hopeless one as well. Uh, and she is a copywriter. She just does bits and bobs whenever she can to help the war effort. And someone discovers some of her writing, in particular when she stood in for a cartoonist and wrote a little script. People thought it was funny. And it turns out the Ministry of Information Films Division, aka Wartime Propaganda, from the British government are trying to enhance the female angle, as they put it, in a lot of their material. So they turn to Catherine as someone who clearly has a great feminine voice, uh, but also seems to know her way around a pen and paper, a script, typewriter. And it's typewriters, that's what they used to use, wasn't it? Yeah, typewriters. Mm. Uh, and so they hire her to help write some new pictures for them, give them a bit of insight. Would you like to hear a clip of that meeting? Yes. So here is Catherine Cole meeting Roger Swain, who's the head of the department, played by Richard E. Grant, and also a special advisor, played by Sam Claflin of, uh, what's that film called, Me Before You, The Me Hunger Before Games. You, he was in Hunger Games. He was uh, the hunky guy. The hunky guy at the Riot Club, where he played an awful horrible toff i think he's a man with talent actually phil uh let's see how they all do in this meeting so sorry monstrous of us to have kept you waiting welcome to the ministry of information film division roger swain you must be miss cole this is oh splendid please take a seat husband in the forces he volunteers as an air aid warden but he wasn't fit for conscription he fought in the war in spain splendid that's splendid now about the job we need to cultivate a more convincing female angle in our output. Mr. Buckley here has been appointed to the department as a special advisor. Not special enough to get paid, obviously. He seems to think you're what we need. I said might be. She can't be worse than those chaps you've got. Did you write this? Mm-hmm. It was wrapped around my chips. I, I was the secretary at the copywriting department, but all the copywriters got called up. So beefy. It ain't beef, but it ain't bad. Because sometimes you just have to make do with what you've got. Ah, splendid. Mystery wages started at three and ten. And obviously we can't pay you as much as the chaps, so shall we say uh, two pounds a week? Thank you. So she's got a bit of a Welsh accent then? I thought it was a pretty good Welsh accent. Do you know him? No, the key with an accent, whether or not it's a good one or a bad one, is if it goes up and down in tone, very flat. Okay. Well, I wonder if any Welsh speakers, I was going to say, <laughs> I mean, uh, Welsh listeners have an opinion on that. I was fairly convinced by it. I think she does a good job. Is this a true story, man? 
No, this is, is not a true story. This is based on Lissa Evans' sort of farcical comedy, and it's a fictional scenario, but it's based in real events and real things, because it is certainly true that women on the home front suddenly found themselves getting involved in all kinds of industries and levels of seniority that previously they just wouldn't have been part of. Not exactly that they were denied it, but it just wasn't considered women's work or whatever it was. And so in that sort of fertile ground of women doing it, extraordinary things there's also the fact that propaganda films got made and that's quite interesting on its own terms because what unusual pieces of film they are and the stuff that they achieved in uh, in the war that was kind of fascinating combining those two things together is is a thing that happened there were women's films that got made designed to bolster a support at home and abroad and everything else so it's not true at all but it's based on things that are true this is a perfectly enjoyable movie. I worried there were things about it that were going to slightly annoy me because it's definitely got a strong sense of right on going on here and every opportunity there is for Gemma Arterton to plant a zinger on any one of the idiotic men who don't recognise her abilities, she takes it. So just about every situation in which a man can belittle a woman is shown so that we can also therefore see how ridiculous it is that that was ever said, because Gemma Arterton is more than their equal in just about everything. So is there quite a clear agenda in the sense that it wants to uh, uh, support and encourage and acknowledge the effort of women in, in World War Two? Yeah, definitely, and, and that's a laudable aim. I think the problem with that is that it grates a little bit because it's like, they, I mean, literally, there's no situation where they don't emphasise that point. And it's a good point, but it beats, it beats you a little bit with it every now and again. Fortunately... It's actually also a good story and it's funny and it's well shot and it's warmly delivered and it's excellently performed. So it's not just a sort of social message. It's actually kind of for romance at different points, which you might argue undercuts that social message a little bit. It's also a drama, a kind of real life wartime drama with bombs being dropped and terrible things happening, food rations, factory work, all that stuff going on. Uh, and it's also kind of a straight up classic British comedy. At times, it really felt almost Richard Courtesy, especially with the introduction of Bill Nye, who is this egocentric, over the hill actor, too old to serve in the war and too sort of proud to be doing some of the things that are required of him uh, by the new sort of state of the film industry. He can't cope with the fact that the war has changed his job as much as anything else. And he's just going to have to not be the sort of charming hero he thought he was. And he just brings all the sort of about-timey, gentlemanly, Britishy charm to the table that you can imagine. It's just, it's just kind of a classic British film, really, a bit of a romp. Does that make it lightweight, then? I think it wants to be lightweight, actually. I don't think this is a film that is trying to yank your heartstrings until you ball like a baby. I don't think this is a film that's going to try and radically change your thoughts on anything like that. It's a pretty straight-down-the-line, cheerful for the most part feel good movie with some some standout parts in it yeah and i should mention like that the proper plot of the movie that's the situation but the proper plot is that uh, Gemma arson's character katrin reads a story in a newspaper about twin sisters who steal their father's boat to cross the channel and rescue soldiers from dunkirk and this is considered a great story potentially for a film because it's going to encourage all the gents and the ladies uh, at home as they might have put it uh, and so she races off to go and meet the sisters things aren't quite how they appeared she might have to bend the truth a little bit but then the rest of the movie is them making that film 
turning it into a script, having to battle with the sort of government and studio interference, needing to have an American put into their film so that they can show it well to American audiences, uh, having sort of just general interference and also basic production blunders being there on the day, like actors walking into shot when they shouldn't be there, things not quite being how they should be, having hired a documentary director rather than a sort of dramatic director, all that kind of stuff. And that is really that's really enjoyable, but... You know, as I hope I'm sort of communicating, this film is so sort of safe and through the middle of all those genres that none of those things ever really stands out to you. The thing that hits you most is that it's just a kind of warm, nice, nostalgic tale that has a vaguely positive message about how great women are and what an awesome contribution they made to the war. But it kind of just washes over you and you're a bit left... Thing. Yeah, that was nice. I mean, I feel like I'm. <laughs> the more I keep talking, the more I think there's not much more to say than a kind of general summing up. It it is nice. I think what one thing I quite appreciated is that wartime London feels very ordinary. So although there are bombs that get dropped and there are extreme circumstances, there's very few wide shots of anything. There's very few like shots of planes in the night flying through the sky and anti-aircraft guns. There's not really any of that. It's actually all quite close camera work quite small locations and that does provide it with a quite a personal intimate feeling and dare i say kind of a boring one (laughs) but and i think an intentionally boring one and it's really really slow paced because you know even though they're trying to develop this film urgently to inspire the troops and stuff they've got plenty of time to just walk along the coast she's got plenty of time to have romantic problems with her artist husband uh, and perhaps someone new They've got plenty of time to sing songs in the pub together and kind of do British tourist activities. So I hope I'm building a picture of a slow-paced, enjoyable, inoffensive movie. It probably could have done more in any one of those four directions. It could have been funnier. It could have been more dramatic, melodramatic even. It definitely could have been more socially sort of challenging. And it could have been more romantic. Like they could have focused more on that. But it, it's not any one of those four things, really. Do you think it will do well as a British film in the box office? Do you think people will go see it? I think, I hesitate to say, it probably won't compete against the Fast and Furious franchise. Or but I think Boss that's Baby. why it's out right now. Because if you look at it's weird, actually. We've had some very light weeks on releases. And I think this is a film for an older crowd, was what I mainly felt by the end of it. Because, you know, I'm saying about all this stuff about women's contribution and all the zingers that get shot out. It's funny that they contextualise that with her writing a cartoon at the beginning, which is sort of mocking gender stereotypes at the time. And actually most of that social comment feels like that. And that puts me in the mind of all the generation people that I know. And they love those posters that you put on the fridge or whatever it is, uh, saying that, oh, behind uh, a great man are are 10 great women or something. You know, they're sort of like classic or almost saucy postcards that reveal women to be in control of the world and men to kind of be a bit foolish. But written, like, you, can you remember those ones from yeah, way, way back in the day? They're sort of warmly fun. And... Exactly. And they poke fun. But actually, it, they poke fun because it, they also subtly reinforce those gender stereotypes. So anyway, that's a, a bundle of thorns. What's the word I'm looking for? A nest of vipers? <laughs> I don't know. You're but getting all confused, man. I think this film is aimed at an older crowd, so it'll do well. Yeah. What's the grade then? I'd probably give it a, a B. I think it's very enjoyable. Whoever you are, it's very inoffensive and gentle. I can't think of anyone who wouldn't enjoy it. But there are very few people who are going to put it on their top 20 movies of all time list. Yeah. Bonuses? I do really like the American character who turns up. The guy playing him is Jake Lacey, who I'm not that familiar with. But the whole point is that this guy's a war hero and not really an actor. So when they get him in to try and act, that's quite enjoyable. Not really a bonus, just a nice thing. 
that's kind of the, how the film is. <laughs> well, just before we finish, do you want to have a go at Welsh accent? I'll be writing the script then. How's that? <laughs> Come on, you do it then. Well, I guess run, run away. Oh dear. Now we're going to review The Handmaiden, listeners, described by, as an erotic thriller, basically. And I was trying to warn Phil of the content of this film before he went, but in a very determined way, he said, no, it's fine, I'm going to go for it, it's okay. And let me tell you why, because it's a <laughs> Park Chan work film, and he's the guy who did Old Boy, which is a film I've seen. I've also seen another one of his films, which is Thirst. And both those films have stayed in my mind very much for a long time after seeing them. He's a very distinctive filmmaker and he makes very interesting films. Not necessarily pleasant films, but very interesting ones. Old Boy certainly is regarded as an absolute classic, isn't it? Yeah, and that's not pleasant at all. And yet there's some elements of brilliance in it that I can't deny. Okay. And so I was intrigued. That's what I will say. All right. So looking forward to your thoughts. So The Handmaiden is a film set in 1930s Korea and it's during the time when uh, Japan was occupying Korea and so you have uh, a weird sort of dynamic with Koreans and people who are in their land and sort of the gents and the gentlemen of the day are dismissive of Koreans. We are introduced to Suki, and I apologise, this is, I'm going to get all of the names wrong. <laughs> and also, I'm not fine. even going to say the actors. I don't think, I've looked them up, and I don't think you'll know them from any other thing else. Uh, they're, main, they're Korean stars, but I don't think it's going to assist you. So I'm not going to go with their, the actors' names, I'm just going to say the characters. So Suki is uh, a, a lady, a young girl, who's been told that she is going to become the new handmaiden for Lady Hideku, who is uh, living in a house. She is Japanese, but she's living in Korea, and she's under the, the, the care of her uncle, Uncle Kazuki, I think it is. And it just so happens that Lady Hideko is, in, in fact, an incredibly wealthy heiress uh, who's quite young, quite naive, and seems to be just not very aware of what's going on in her life. She seems to be trapped in this sort of weird mix of a castle and a, a Japanese-style house. Right. And as this handmaiden joins her and begins to serve her and gets to know her, there's a kind of a weird chemistry that they have. Uh, Suki is quite clumsy and silly and irreverent almost and doesn't seem to realise that this is a lady. But this lady herself seems to be a bit bizarre, not not sort of aware of what men are like and, and, and seems to be quite repressed and infantile, basically. There's another final character, which is Count Fujiwara, I think it is. Yes, that's what I've got here. Yep, nice. Fujiwara. And this count isn't quite what he seems, and neither is Suki, because they are, in fact, con men and women, and they are in trying to seduce this heiress in order to get all her fortune and then leave her, send her to marry her off to this count and then get her to a madhouse. That is the kind of setup of this film. So it's a bizarre... It's a weird sort of heist. It's a weird sort of criminal film almost. I didn't see that coming from the trailer You don't see it at coming all. at all because it, the setting is very kind of Jane Austen-y almost in a very sort of bizarre way. And that's because it is in fact based on an English novel 
which was called The Fingersmith. And it's by this author. I can't quite remember the name, but she wrote Tipping the Velvet. Sarah Waters. Sarah Waters, yeah. So she's written a lot of these sort of erotic mystery melodramas that have kind of intertwining plots and, and themes and ties and and it's very confusing and it's kind of the narrative dives and weaves between the their sort of states. So the whole idea of the handmaiden that you kind of start with that, it's not quite what it, everything seems slightly not what it seems. And it this film genuinely took me by surprise, even though I knew this film was basically about uh, a con man trying to get this money from this heiress. By about the first 20 minutes of the film, I was then shocked to find something out, even though I knew that thing already. But because the (laughs) film kind of warms you up to this idea of this very sort of proper civilized world, you don't see this suddenly, this this con element, this criminal element coming in, even though I knew that it was going to come in. That's funny, isn't it? It carried, carried you along with it very well. The director really knows what he's doing and he melds together very bizarre tones where you've got a sort of budding romance between Suki, the handmaiden, and this lady. They seem to sort of have this chemistry that they don't quite know what to do with. And then you've also got these slightly dark horror elements to the story. The uncle seems very not right. In fact, there's a kind of odd Quentin Tarantino-esque moment where the uncle is introduced and it has that, oh, really? but in kind of the, the, in that sort of. Yeah, 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 gotcha. And so this film really, really hooked me. I can't deny it, it really, really hooked me. And I was really engaged and I didn't see loads and loads and loads of the things coming at all. And so that was very enjoyable. I have to say, I enjoyed lots of this film and I was constantly left wondering, oh no, I didn't see that coming at all. That, that means blah, blah, blah. And all these little fiery connections were firing off in my head as I watched it. And suddenly more and more of this narrative and this world is revealed. It's not entirely pleasant at, at times. It's really unpleasant. And if anyone's seen Old Boy and, and knows there's that scene with the scissors, there's one scene which is very much like that, which wasn't ple- pleasant to watch as well. And there's a whole other aspect of the film that I want to address later on, which I'll come to, which uh, I'll leave for now. I have to say that this was the director's cut or the extended edition of okay, the film. Okay, yeah. So, so in fact, you mentioned that to me as you, as you got there. Unfortunately, that was the one which I could go see. And so it might be slightly different to the film that you see. But having read the plots of the book that it's based on and also what this film was based on, I'm kind of wondering where the extended, extended parts of this film were. And I slightly wonder if it's that thing which I'm going to come and talk to you in a bit. <laughs> well, for all you know, it could just be longer shots. They might have just had a tight read It might not be anything as significant as that. Yeah, it might be just very much extensions to what's already there. And that's why I'll come on to it in a little bit. Right, right, right. The performances are really good. And even though it's in Korean and Jap- Japanese as well, you get a real sense of what's going on just from the performances by the actors. There's a real physicality to what they do. There's a lot of humour, which I did not see coming at all. I was laughing at numerous points just from just from the expressions and the little actions that they do. And within, whenever there's conning going on, there's a bit of a performance to the to the characters. They're putting on a show for the sake of somebody yeah, else. Yeah. And that's very funny and exciting and interesting. And there's always that tension in any sort of film where are they going to be discovered? Are they going to be rattled? And dis- is it all going to fall apart, basically? The thing is, Phil, like hearing you talk like this, had I not seen the trailer and heard the sort of ambiance and the way that it's been cut, so they're very short cuts in all the trailers, very few long scenes... What I've seen bears no resemblance to what I would imagine based on what you're telling me. And what it looks like from the trailers is a very intense, erotic film. 
that's all about sort of forbidden moments and everything else. But nothing you've said sounds like that. And I've chosen to do that very purposely because the things which I've said so far are the things which I enjoyed about the film. Right. And then there's that thing which I put over there and said I'd is address that what later that is? on. The things which I'll, I wanted to address separately is the sex scenes because there are some some of the most explicit sex scenes I've ever seen in a film. Right. Very reminiscent of Blue is the Warmest Colour. Sure, um, sure. And it seems very odd and kind of jarring and I felt very uncomfortable watching these scenes I bet I felt really uncomfortable <laughs> I was sat in the corner of the cinema <laughs> by myself and I, I just felt like I shouldn't really be watching this mm. because it's it, yeah it serves the story in one sense because it is very clearly gives motivation and direction to what the characters are doing and why they do it and it establishes that very well they're just too explicit and they don't need to be that explicit well but it's interesting you say that because that it that was my overwhelming impression of the film. That's why I said, look, man, I'm hearing this is a properly erotic movie and all that sort of stuff. And based on what the director has done before, he's all about pushing the envelope or whatever it is. And that darkness and that explicitness of everything he does, probably down to language and violence as well as sex stuff, that seems to be his MO. But are you saying it could have had all that cut out and still be really good? It could have had it reduced for certain, for sure. Like, and that's and where you think this extended cut Yeah, thing, exactly. Right. I wonder if okay. maybe I was seeing something which is, there's even more of those, that sex scene, those sex scenes. But I don't know. So I'd be interested if anyone knows, any listeners know. But what I wanted to really kind of highlight is there's there's lots in the film that I really loved. There's a lot of lightness. There's a lot of humour. Yeah, it doesn't look funny in the trailers at all. And you don't pick up on that. The marketing doesn't... It very How much funny. wants to emphasise the erotic thriller <laughs> they element. They obviously think that's the selling point for those guys who'll sit in the corner of the cinema. <laughs> I don't know. But the thing is, is... I think what is impressive about this film is the light and dark and how tightly the story is is kind of weave, woven together... And I was constantly gripped and I constantly wanted to find out what the next step was, the next revelation that would make me review what I'd seen before. I thought this film is an amazingly, impressively well done, but I don't really want to see it again. <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't want to watch this with my parents. <laughs> no, very, yeah, exactly. Uh, is, is there anyone you'd say don't go and watch this? I think you really want to make sure you know what you're getting yourself in for. The narrative, the mystery, the... The characters are all very strong and they hook you and probably you want to know where the story would go. You just might not necessarily be that comfortable about where it eventually ends up. All right, got it. And what's your grade? The grade I'm going to say, and I'm, I'm, I know it's annoying, you're going to get cross at me, you're going to roll your eyes, Laurie. I'm going to give it two grades. It's fine. There's the film as it's made and how well it's put together and how well it's directed and the performances and the production values are just gorgeous. The film looks amazing. I would say it's an A. It's an A, definitely. Okay. It's a really well-made film. Uh, well Such, edited, all that stuff? Yeah, beautifully, wonderfully done. It was so cohesive, even if it was in Korean and Japanese. I was completely invested in what was going on. As a film, just in terms of its content, and for me, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's really what I want to be watching and whether or not I should be watching, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'd give it a B-. I think one fatal flaw is the fact that because it revolves around this... Uh, sexually explicit world and because one of the characters is kind of one of the plot points is that he's a collector of erotica yeah they seem to condemn that and say that it's oh look how perverse these people are and at the same time you're watching a film with very explicit sex scenes (laughs) directed by a man of two women and so it's hard to kind of counterbalance those two things yeah and it slightly undermines itself because the world it creates is saying look how awful this is but then also look at look at these things going on and maybe they think it's sort of a tenderly lovely moment uh, with the, the the two women 
but I'm not I wasn't convinced basically I felt like it was kind of leering and that was uncomfortable the sort of male gaze stuff yeah exactly it's, it's hard to avoid it basically okay. it's really hard to avoid it it's the same sort of problems with blue as the warmest colour well that's what this is ringing bells and listeners Phil did a review of that some time ago now on um, what we've been watching yeah. it was quite similar in fact um, well there you go Phil interesting I didn't expect that side of it at all I mean it sounds like there's actually a reason to see it. I'd slightly discounted it, but the con artisty stuff does sound interesting, just maybe not interesting enough. I'd be really interested to know if listeners do go see this film or have seen this film. I know Benedict has seen it, and I was really interested to hear what his thoughts were, but he had to go, unfortunately. Email in if you've seen this film, superbadybros at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at superbadybros. I'd love to hear what your thoughts were on the film, whether or not it worked for you, whether or not you thought any of that sort of explicitness was justified. Um, but I would go in cautiously. I'm, I'm big warnings. Go in cautiously. Make sure you know what you're getting yourself in for. And uh, I would seriously recommend you don't see this with your parents. Yeah, yeah. Way to go, Phil. Thanks very much. That was interesting. Uh, nice job on taking the bullet with a slightly more, um, a, shall we say, provocative piece of filmmaking. <laughs> Okay, a few emails and tweets to go through. Thanks so much, everyone, for getting in touch. First up, Susanna says, at Superbelly Bros, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring is on ITV2. Hashtag classic ITV2 movies. <laughs> they really are great films. What would your grades be? What for the Lord of the Rings films? I guess it's sort of rating them. It's, it's tricky because they're a real a proper trilogy and unusually they're all shot at the same time, blah, blah, blah. So they do stand together. But The Two Towers is clearly the best one. Do you think so? Yeah, absolutely. I think I prefer The Fellowship of the Ring, actually. You're wrong. You're How wrong. wrong. You're How so you, wrong. You can't tell me I'm wrong. It's you an opinion. Were wrong. <laughs> you were wrong. Wow, that's a real meta reference right there. You were wrong. I think Fellowship of the Ring has the best atmosphere of all of them. If you sit there at the beginning, you, the small world of Hobbiton feels fantastic. Who wouldn't love to live there and drink ale and walk around in bare feet all day? That is true, and it certainly introduces the world fantastically. And, but it, and it opens up before your eyes, and you suddenly feel like, whoa, this thing is massive, and here are these tiny hobbits in the middle of it all. I love But then the, the ending one. of that film is a bit hollow because it's the only the first leg of three Disagree. films. Very powerful. It's very hollow. And especially when you know how great the next two are. No, I agree, but it's a hollow ending, and so if you watch the first one you're gonna to have to watch the second one and the second one is so good lord boromir <laughs> in that way uh so look, Susanna, fellowship of the ring gets an a from me lord of the rings two towers gets an a minus uh return of the king i won't say a minus minus because still in the uh, a category but i think that's the weakest of the three i think return of the king is the weakest too long at the end bloated i think fellowship of the ring is really really good but two towers is a star i love helm's deep man Helm's Deep is fantastic. <laughs> we get it, we get it. Uh, okay, a really short one here from uh, JD that I'm personally very pleased about. Uh, he is giving me a plus one for Storks. Oh, wow, that's a deep dive. <laughs> it's true. It's partly because we mentioned it on Rewards, and I said it was better than it had any reason to. digging up points that have been long buried. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. And this is a recent point. It came today. He said, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, family movie night, and we thought it was brilliant. Been a long time since we've actually laughed properly at a funny animation so there you go there you go it's i listeners if you haven't seen storks if jd and i and, and no one else has anyone else seen it <laughs> haven't convinced you do give it a shot especially if you've got kids i think it's it's great it's heartwarming and hilarious andy so. sandberg does the uh, voice of the stork doesn't he yeah and does a great job with it too uh we had another email here from Stephen. in fact we had it's not an email it's four tweets in a row Stephen says at super belly rose what is the point of seeking a friend for the end of the world a terrible film or did i miss something hashtag movie clinic Oh, that's the Simon Pegg one, isn't it? No, Steve Carell, I think it is, and Kieran Knightley. But I know why you say Simon Pegg. I think you're talking about World's End. Very similar titles, and that's exactly what I thought when I saw the title first. I think there's a reason why this one is less memorable, because <laughs> it slipped under the radar. But I'm saying let's watch that next week. What do you think? 
Yeah, okay, deal. First session of the movie clinic. Yeah. All right, nice. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, he carried on. Plus one to Laurie on Fast and Furious 8. I was worried you'd hate it, but pleased you enjoyed it for what it was. Definitely watch Fast and Furious 7 for stunts. I'm a bit troubled that um, people think I'm going to hate all these things. You keep on saying stuff like this. I think you know what you like, and I think you don't get sucked in by the sort of... You don't go with what people tell you to think. That's the who, thing. Who, who would? That's what I say. Unless I'm telling you what to think, in which case go along with it. <laughs> uh, but I'm glad. Thanks for the plus one. And while I'm at it, he says, another minus one to Phil for Beauty and the Beast, but his wife would like to give you a plus one, so it sort of cancels out. Yeah, I was getting really depressed then. <laughs> really? Yeah, I get so many minus ones. Is this what you felt like last year? Yeah, I used to lose a lot. I, I thought I was too edgy. I think I still have a lot of bad blood between me and some listeners for my views on Deadpool, I think. Um, maybe I should stop bringing it up quite so much. <laughs> but that, I think that's when I really felt my popularity ratings were dipping. So don't worry, Phil. There's plenty of time to climb You've back You've got to take out. the rough with the smooth, haven't you? <laughs> exactly. So rough. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and a quick extra note here from Benedict. He tweeted uh, Super Baby Bros account. He's done a Netflix UK guide best classic films and he's done a very good job of that too so if you're interested in catching up on some classics then scroll down the feed for benedict's list and get some recommendations yeah that's a good one to do often you think oh, i want to get catch up on my uh, film diet and make sure i get those classics in there good for you but which ones do you start with exactly benedict's got the answer uh but that's uh, that's it i think this week yeah those are all the tweets and emails will do keep them coming superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on twitter let us know your thoughts on any of the films we've reviewed this week handmaiden the transfiguration and their finest tesco's finest maybe not the strongest week this week it's been a, i'm kind of looking forward to easter being over because we've got some big movies out next week like guardians of the galaxy 2 for example yeah we're starting to get into the summer blockbuster sort of zone and that's when there's going to be some gold and i'm feeling the lull so something to look forward to but uh, thanks for getting in touch listeners so in my opinion what uh, probably the most versatile of the kind of classic horror monsters is the vampire because i mean you can have twilight vampires you can have near-dark vampires. You can have classic gothic kind of Bram Stoker's Dracula vampires. Or you can have the weirdly smooth-skinned and featureless vampires from Van Helsing starring Hugh Jackman. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people forget that iconic <laughs> they presentation do. for some that, reason. That classic that pinnacle <laughs> of vampire portrayal. And the Transfiguration takes vampires and offers us something quite different, actually. Right. It's not something I've seen before. Because what the Transfiguration does is it essentially takes a 14-year-old African-American character, a boy, Milo, and it suggests, okay, this is one of those kind of weird kids in the school playground who thinks he's a vampire. I'm sure they exist, you know. But that what was you, if he... Until you thought that was that <laughs> right? No, no you thought you were Igor. People of, will um... believe it. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> no, yeah, that's right, not true. Right, yeah, At right. no point did I think I was a vampire, just to clarify. <laughs> but yes, I'm I do know, em- I know those kids. Uh, there are those kids on the playground who think they're just a bit strange bit and special. they seem to believe very wholeheartedly that they're something odd. Yeah, and it takes that and it says, what if this guy, A, actually was a vampire or B, wants to actually pursue this as a kind of... Uh, like lifestyle. a lifestyle for himself Ooh. he's going to follow through on the idea of it and actually do something a bit dark maybe he is Ooh. yeah that is an unusual setup i mean is this I mean, right now is this horror benedict is that what we need to sort of anticipate when we hear a clip um it's kind of in a way stuck between being a straight-up vampire horror film and being a very kind of indie identity coming of age tale okay in a way and it kind of cr- blends those quite well not entirely 
satisfactorily, but it's certainly a very, very interesting idea. Okay. Have we got a clip? We do indeed. And this is a clip of Milo and Sophie, who's somebody who moves in a few floors up from him in his kind of tower block. And he sees her and thinks, okay, that is another outcast like me. Why don't I go and say hello? And they kind of develop a bit of a connection. And the strange thing about Milo is he loves to talk about vampires. So it's not something he hides from people. He is open with his love of vampires and vampire films. And he talks about them in this clip. It's just, I bet the vampires in Twilight aren't very realistic. There's no such thing as a realistic vampire. There is. I mean, more realistic. I mean, vampires don't twinkle. Okay, so, so what are vampires like? Well, I think it starts with drinking blood. Like, like you have a need to. It's like, it's like when you have a cut on your finger when you're a little kid and you're sucking on it. But eventually that's not good enough. So you, so you switch to animals and stuff like that. And then you know people. And, and you change a lot after the first person you kill. And you change a lot more after, after one after another. But I think when you first start out being a vampire, all the, all the stuff you see in the movies doesn't really matter. Like, you can go out in the sun, and you can eat garlic, and I don't even think the church stuff is even true. Like, maybe to religious vampires, you know? And I don't think you get bit. I think it's like a, it's like a disease you get. Wow. Which book is this? It's not a book. It's just how I think it is. Vampires existed before books did. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting dialogue. That's definitely slow-paced. Listeners, you can't see it, but the camera is handheld, I guess. Yep. It's quite shaky, quite high-contrast, crisp imagery. I'm definitely picking up the indie film vibe, if that's what it's going for. I'm not totally sure how I feel about that dialogue, Benedict. I think you're totally right. Okay. That is one of the struggles of the film, and particularly when they're talking about that kind of postmodern thing of a vampire-like character talking about vampires yeah. does come across as a bit clumsy. It seems a bit self-aware to me. It's very aware that this is a film that is trying to explode a genre, unless it's being even cleverer than that. But all that chit-chat about vampires not sparkling, I don't think that needed to be said, for example. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's lots of... That becomes quite a key thread of the film, is he has not seen or read Twilight. That's but, a key part of this film. That's, well, <laughs> genuinely. It is, a repeat, it is a subplot. It is something that they repeatedly come back to because he has seen... Kind of classic vampire films uh, well classic and non-classic right on he has a, a shelf of vhs tapes that he's recorded obviously from his tv that range from the lost boys and fright night to something like Drac- dracula untold uh, but he has not seen twilight that is the only real vampire world that sophie this character this other character knows so i mean that sounds as though it wants to be quite satirical and allegorical about the world today I and mean, is that about right satirical not too much or if they're aiming (laughs) for that it doesn't come across allegorical most definitely right all right in the sense that this isn't really a film about vampires this is a film about identity this boy milo he lives with his brother older brother lewis and both of his parents are dead as are sophie's parents so they lack that kind of adult influence to tell them or to help them on the way to finding out who they are and they obviously don't find any kind of affinity with their peers or the kind of the gangs that hang out around their neighborhood. They have to find themselves in something else. And he turns to vampirism and vampire fiction and vampire film. I'm sort of just wondering where the horror part comes in because 
And how does it fit in? Is it that this this boy, in his ideas, he starts doing things that are horrific? He does. So he has this kind of, this book, I suppose, of kind of Bible that he makes, essentially, which takes writing about vampires and other vampire films and kind of writes down their rules. So he'll write, uh, does the sunlight hurt me? No, it doesn't. Do I want to drink blood? Yes, I do. That kind of thing. Right. Obviously, because he's not getting a full kind of set of rules or a set of guidelines from any of these vampire films or vampire books, he comes up with his own set. And his own set of rules are quite horrific. And he will actively go out to try and feed occasionally. That I, Okay, that sounds more horrific and things like that. But how does, it, how does the film film those parts? Is it following horror conventions and sort of giving you a scary build-up to kind of a nasty idea? Or is it... The, the whole concept is scary, but the way the film is made and produced and put together is actually very unlike a horror film. I would say definitely the latter. Um, yeah, that, that definitely applies here. Milo won't indulge his vampiric urges when she's around. The violence comes in kind of fits and bursts, but whenever he is alone, you get the sense that he is thinking very, very dark things. He will watch horrific videos on the internet from abattoirs and that kind of thing Um, and that becomes kind of feeding him without actively going out and hurting people but he still can't help himself where are you going with this Benedict are you thinking this is good bad one to avoid shows promise I think it is consistently interesting it brings up very very interesting ideas about youths certainly youths from uh, less well-off backgrounds not necessarily having strong parental or kind of adult figures to help them find themselves yeah okay often thinking that the best way to find themselves is maybe to indulge their darker urges because they don't have anybody to encourage them no let's try and stay on the the right side of the law the right side of morality uh and i think it is saying very very interesting things about that what it does lack is that compelling plot or compelling kind of character arcs because i mean the title the transfiguration working out what that transfiguration of the title actually is is very very difficult i thought it was very ambiguous i was kind of wrestling with the film at the end being like okay what moment was that kind of divine moment in the film is this one to recommend or avoid i think it's one to recommend for people well versed in vampire films and vampire books certainly i think they'd find it interesting if heavy-handed in its direct reference of other films but i think they might find what it's saying outside of that what it's suggesting quite interesting for non-horror fans i think this might not quite satisfy um because it is very slow in a way if you're not thrilled by the occasional moments of horror i think the slow meandering kind of indie sensibility might put people off possibly okay uh, what's the Super Bailey Booze score, listeners? This is uh, a score out of 10 to say how horror it is. For those of you who are not horror fans, then you're hoping for a 1 out of 10. For those of you who love the blood and guts and gore and everything else, you're hoping for a 10. I think this would probably go at a 4 or a 5. Okay. Uh, they're very sporadic moments, but they are very harsh and played very realistically. Right. So there's throat slit and blood sucked and Ooh. that kind of thing. There we go. What's the grade, Benedict? I would probably go with a B minus. I think it shows promise and I think it's certainly interesting, but uh, is never as compelling as it could be. Well, great. Thanks very much, Benedict. That's an unusual one to say, different from your normal sort of path. I think we've had you in to talk about Split 
uh, we've had you install about rings, both quite big budget, and this is very, very small. So this interesting very, very to small. get another perspective. Yeah. There we go, listeners. That jingle means is what we've been watching this week. And this week, I have seen Dread. Dread with Carl Urban, yeah? Correct. The adaptation of the comic book and trying to distance itself very much from Sylvester Stallone's 1995 much derided version. And I've gone to see, well, I've watched again Star Trek Beyond. Oh, great. The third one. Yes, the third one of the Chris Pine set. Very good. The reboot. Uh, shall I go first? Yes. One I do dread. 800 million people living in the ruin of the old world. Only one thing fighting for order in the chaos. The men and women of the Hall of Justice. Pierce Trees is the manufacturing base for all the slow-mo in Mega City One. You know how often we get a judge up in Peace Trees? Well, you got one now. She has control of everything. Levels 1 to 200. This is Mama. Somewhere in this block are two judges. That's not good. I want him dead. We're gonna have to go through him. Rookie, you ready? Yeah. You look ready. Mama's not the law. I'm the law. Dread. You have to say dread with that voice, don't you? Dread. Yeah, that's basically Carl Urban's performance. Dread. Mega City One. <laughs> this, is, this is about Judge Dread. In the future, as you kind of heard described in that trailer, society's broken down. I think it's a post-apocalyptic sort of place. Humanity gets grouped into the huge cities, and this is set in Mega City One. 800 million people are in it. Uh, there's something like 17,000 crimes every day, or something along those lines, and the only form of justice are the judges, a special unit uh, recruited for their ability to beat people up, I guess, as well as an innate sense of what's right and wrong. And they get full authority to go and dispense justice according to the law throughout the streets. So they're sort of like properly empowered vigilantes. They it's can do whatever they want as 200 they see fit. Batmans <laughs> on the streets of Gotham, <laughs> uh, the judge system. That's exactly, that's right. And this is the sort of setting for the story is there's a new judge who is being tried out to join the team. She's called Cassandra. Um, she's much slighter than the normal uh, recruits for the judges. She got selected when she was nine as an orphan and trained. And you're told in this sort of sequence where Judge Dredd, the very experienced judge, is being sort of introduced to her that she was just average right the way through. And she was just under the recommended aptitude level to be passed as a judge. But she's got impressive psychic abilities. So they want to try her out in the field. They go down to this place called Peach Trees, which is a massive living complex, sort of impossibly huge high rise with thousands and thousands of people living in it uh, because they hear about three homicides. Judge Dredd is saying to Cassandra, look, come on, you take the lead. Tell me what to do. We'll try you out. And if it all goes well, then I'll tell you whether you passed or failed as a judge. And that's exactly the tone he uses. He's like, yeah, we'll just give it a go. Remember? Yeah, come on. Yeah, try, <laughs> do your best. Don't worry. That's, no. that's, that's exactly the tone. Well done, Phil. Yeah. And wouldn't you know it, when they get there, it's not just a case of three homicides. In fact, they've accidentally stumbled across the producers of the biggest uh, illicit drug trade in the whole city. Slow-mo. <laughs> Phil hates it. It's called slow-mo. It's just such a lame way of calling a drug a drug. It's a, it's a bit silly, but it's very descriptive because it's a futuristic drug where when you smoke it, everything slows down and it makes your brain feel like things are happening uh, like uh, a fraction of the time that they actually are, or the other way around. So everything is incredibly slow. Um, and yeah, very quickly, they s suddenly encounter more gangsters than they know what to do with. Through some clever trickery, the gangsters put the building on lockdown. So Judge Dredd and Cassandra are kept from the outside world. And just the two of them have got to try and fight their way up 
uh, to the head of this organisation, dispense justice and make it out alive. Sound exciting? Yeah, it does. You know what? It is quite exciting. What's most interesting about this film, really, listeners, is the fact that it was a failure. The production budget was something like $40 million and it only made, or maybe it was $45 million and it only made $40 million worldwide gross back, which is not very much at all. Uh, and it was released in 2012. Carl Urban himself has gone on record of saying he thought the marketing team messed it up. No one knew the film was coming out, so no one went to see it. There's also suggestions that the fact that it was rated 18, as many films are not these days, severely limited its audience. And the fact that Judge Dredd is not that well an established character. The thing people might remember him more for is the terrible 1995 film that people hated. So there wasn't much appetite for a Judge Dredd film. And it's all a shame because it just goes to show you that all the stuff around the film can be more responsible for whether it's a success or failure than whether it's well-made or not, because it is quite a well-made movie. You've seen it, Phil, haven't you? I have seen and I really enjoyed it. I think it's not to everyone's taste, I'm sure, the sci-fi setting, the kind of extremist sort of vibe of Judge Dredd being sort of so brutal might not appeal to some. But I think there's something there, and it's just very tightly plotted, and it doesn't try to do too much. Absolutely. You know what it reminded me most of, and it's not a direct parallel, but John Wick, I think, is actually very similar in some respects. The thing that people love John Wick for in its sort of cult status is that it's a small film with small ambitions and what it does it commits to 100% and Judge Dredd is that as well it's got a lot of violence it's quite unpleasant violence much more graphic than anything I've seen for quite some time Judge Dredd is a completely one note character they don't give him some emotional backstory they don't give him some emotional story full stop he just you never is. see his face do you? yeah no just the chin and the mouth and he's just Carl Urban going yeah we've got to take these guys out like it's very straightforward you know exactly what to expect around every corner I think Lane uh, Heady or Headley, I can't remember. As Mama, the uh, drug lord. Exactly, the drug lord, who is also Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones, people mostly know her from. It's very good, actually. She's very convincing as a female sort of drug baron and crime lord. They knew how to write her so that she felt really, really threatening without doing the annoying thing of making her like beat everyone up. That's not what she's like. Her threat is the fact that she's cleverer than everyone else and more, much more ruthless and wicked than anyone else. So I thought it was a very well-written role, and I thought it was well-acted by her. I think Cassandra, uh, this sort of young, inexperienced judge, who's played by, ooh, Olivia somebody, Olivia Shirley or something like that. <laughs> Thurlby, I think it is. Not a very familiar name. Uh, she's, I think she was in Juno, but this was kind of a breakout role for her. She's I, the best friend of Juno, yeah. That's right. I thought she was really good in this. She reminded me a bit... Um, of a sort of naive version of uh, the fifth element uh, Mia Jovovich's character there's something about her that really works as a sci-fi personality and her contrast of naive compassion but still trying to be a tough judge with Judge Dredd's unrelenting steadfastness was a good on-screen duo I think people who love shoot-em-ups and action buildings getting blown apart and quite well-staged standoffs and little in quotes cool moments where he does a special kind of judo chop people are going to love that stuff people are going to love the fact that he says to his gun incendiary ammo and then it shoots out like flames as opposed to normal bullets there is so much in this film that is so well crafted and designed to fit a certain audience i just it's so sad that it failed because i think that audience want another one but it won't happen because everything around the film failed i wouldn't say as you said phil i wouldn't say it's particularly my kind of thing i'm not a big fan of that kind of violence I, I don't find it that cool to watch, but I was impressed by the level of restraint from the direction particularly, and this is Pete Travis, who did City of Tiny Lights. He allowed it to be a straight-up B-movie, one location, and just really just committed to that, made it as interesting as possible without being annoying. 
and I respect more or less everything about it. So it would probably get a B plus from me because I do respect it, but it, it's not it's not my kind of film. And listeners, if you're if you're squeamish at all about violence and you don't like seeing a high body count, then avoid it. But if you quite like John Wick, for example, then you'll probably love this. And it's got kind of vibes of Die Hard as well, I think. Not in terms of the tone, but just in terms of the idea of a very close setting. Yeah, definitely. Solid action. Classic B-movie stuff, yeah. Should I go on with Star Trek Beyond? Do it. Beyond. Is that music? It's a good choice. Hey, well played. We got no ship. No crew. How are we going to get out of this one? We will find hope in the impossible. Well, at least I won't die alone. Well, that's just typical. This is where it begins, Captain. This is where the frontier pushes back. What the hell is this? I know why you're here. Why we are all here. Okay, let's never do that again. Yeah, Beastie Boys, man. You love it. It's just great, isn't it? Yeah, this is, it was, this is one of the films where I really thought, let's have some more of that rock music in trailers and in films in general. And then Suicide Squad came along and ruined it all. <laughs> Basically. Anyway, we're not talking about that film. We're talking about Star Trek Beyond. This is directed by Justin Lin. The guy who did Fast and Furious, a couple of the Fast and Furious movies. Uh, not Fast and Furious 8, but yes, yeah, yep. Yep, so he's got a good track record for fun movies, silly fun movies. And I'm, I love this movie. I think it's a great movie. It's so much fun. I think that's rare to find in big franchises. I think in some ways this is quite a risky film because it doesn't really take the franchise too seriously. It doesn't take the law too seriously. Instead, it just says, here's a bunch of great characters. We've got this world of the Star Trek universe with the Enterprise and everything like that. Let's have some fun. Let's throw in some aliens. Let's throw in some action pieces. Let's throw in some fun. There seemed to be a good sense of what even maybe the original stuff was trying to do. It had bigger aspirations, but it knew how to write an episode. And in fact, the weird thing about this film is it feels kind of like a bona fide episode. Exactly. Rather than like a big film, but that works in its favour. You've got Captain Kirk who's feeling a bit weary from his five-year mission. He's three years in and he thinks, am I really cut out for this deep space stuff? Do I just want to have a nice cushy office job as an admiral or whatever? And basically they suddenly get embroiled in this weird alien world with a very bizarre alien leader called Kral and they're kind of confused about why they've been attacked can they get off this planet and what is this motivation of this alien guy there's a kind of mystery element to the story and each character is really handled quite well each of them gets a time to shine you get Chekhov you get Spock you get Bones the Doctor having all fun and you get the introduction of a new character as well Jayla who is this alien engineer type lady mm. who can kick butt yeah. yeah you bet film's written by simon Pegg, and i think it's a really good script it has jokes in it and it has a real balance to the action versus plot points and there's a bit of a mystery that lasts for the entirety of the film with a bit of an emotional payoff as well i think i can't even remember that bit you, you need to tell us this film this is a rewatch for you isn't it it is a rewatch. I mean, I've reviewed, we've reviewed this on the podcast, in fact. We have. It was one of the big releases of last year, and we put it on as one of the best franchise films that have come out in the last year. Watching it again, I really enjoyed it, just as much as the first time. There's a fantastic action sequence in the middle of the film, which goes on and on. I was watching it with my lady friend, 
and uh, she was like, man, it's still going on. Oh, yeah, that was the one we loved, yeah. And she couldn't really handle the tension, the fact that it keeps, keeps on going up. But that's the key thing, it keeps ramping up. It doesn't get tedious, does it? It it's doesn't brilliant. get tedious, it doesn't remain static. It keeps on going, going, going in a really exciting way. I was on the edge of my seat watching it again, even though I knew how it ended and how it resolves. So I'd really recommend this film. If you haven't, you kind of checked out on the, the Star Trek franchise, I'd say... Forget about the second one, the Benedict Cumberbatch one, the Wrath of Khan, whatever it was. <laughs> you think forget it? Forget about it. It's not okay. really needed. All right, all right. Watch the first one, the J.J. Abrams one, which is great fun. Introduces the characters and is just a good fun. And then jump ahead to Star Trek Beyond. You'll love it. I guarantee it. And you won't really have missed anything either. No, you won't. That's, I was thinking that as I was watching the film. The second one is just not needed. Okay. What's the grade? Great for me as an A. I think it's great. I've probably given it more than I did uh, when I reviewed it the first time. But it doesn't matter. I had a great time watching it. And I think it's a good movie that should be appreciated a bit more. Yeah. And it's easily available now on streaming and stuff. So no excuses. Go watch it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of what we've been watching this week. Slightly quicker from you. Thank you for that, Phil. Made up for my longer yeah. review of <laughs> Dread. Yeah. Appreciated. Uh, we'll be back next week with two slightly older movie reviews. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Sorry, can I do the intro for Ask Benedict? Now, Phil, I would like you to, because I enjoy your spur-of-the-moment little off-the-cuff songs. They make no sense at all. They're very enjoyable for all of us. But if you're wanting me to put music to it, can you at least try and keep it in the same key? You try and make the timing consistent so I can retrospectively write? Or he's shaking his head, listeners. Let's no. see what happens. Let's go. <laughs> all right, okay, hit us with it. Ask, ask, Benedict, Benedict. Ask, ask, Benedict, Benedict. That's it. How do you feel about that, Benedict? I'm honoured, to be honest. (laughs) Right. Okay. Now, listeners, as we said in the intro, this is a mini section uh, where we're going to throw Benedict some of the questions you have for him or about horror films in general. And we've had quite a few over the last couple of weeks. We decided to store them up and fire them all at him at once. And he's looking afraid, but he needn't be. I mean, you watch horror films, man. Come on. You're above fear. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's start out. Above fear. That's quite (laughs) quite a bold statement. That's (laughs) a great Rush right past it, like your song. (laughs) Uh, One here from Esther. Esther said, a while ago now, Hi, bros. I, too, am far too much of a coward to watch horror films. However, I really love the way... You ready for this, Benedict? Benedict hooks the listener on with his explanation of horror plots. He really intrigues and pulls you in. Look at that smug face. He's so pleased. I realise it was quite so glowing. (laughs) Makes me feel a bit sick. Uh, (laughs) Idea for a new show. Idea for a new show. Oh, I don't want to read this out. Benedict tells horror stories in his calm, soothing voice for intrigued, scaredy cats to enjoy without having to go through all the tension, creepy music, suspense, etc. Yeah, there's a career <laughs> in down. audiobooks there, I think. I know, a calm, right? soothing voice. So, I mean, what they're saying is that without the jumps and the visuals, yeah. the horror stories maybe could be quite fun because the plots are kind of intriguing. Is that yeah. something you agree with? That's totally something I agree with. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think a good horror film can survive without those jumps and scares. It can't simply just be about scaring the audience. It's got to have a theme. It's got to have a theme. Sorry, a hook, Phil, did you say? Yeah, hook. (laughs) Often they're about a mystery, aren't they? And I think the number of times I've heard about horror movie and I thought, I can't watch that, but I want to know what the plot is and then go on Wikipedia and find it out. I remember when Laurie was reviewing uh, Cure for Wellness, I immediately after we finished recording, I was like, what actually happened? And then Laurie just told me the whole plot, which was great. And I really enjoyed hearing the plot. I'm not sure I want to see the film. No, yeah. Not that scary, that one, but not not particularly pleasant either. Uh, Interesting. Well, there we go. Okay. Uh, That wasn't too bad, was it, Benedict? No, it's wonderful. Let's have another. Now, this is a slightly longer breakdown of Alien. And Josh got in touch to say that he watched it for the first time 
time because I keep going on about it apparently. And Good. he's given us a breakdown and would just like to get your thoughts on this. So here we go. Okay. Bros, I share your collective unease about horror films, even sci-fi ones, but Benedict and Laurie encouraged me to take a risk with Alien. So, plus one to you both, I suppose. I like Alien too. Where's my plus one? But you haven't gone on about <laughs> it. I, I talked about Alien. Now. I said Come it on, to you. Oh, nah, this is so fun. Nah, nah. Okay, thoughts, he says. The first five minutes are incredible. The music, the detail, the atmosphere. It made me wonder if the screenplay had, in quotes, explore the set on it. The ship as a character that ends up not helping the crew at all was the best part of the film by a long way for me. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about yeah. the ship as a character. And then closely followed by all the production values, especially the sound. Cuts from noise to silence were noticeable and stylish. The creature design was clearly groundbreaking and it's astonishing. It still resonates nearly 40 years after it was made. That is true. I mean, it's a sort of wonky puppet, but it's still scary, right? Yeah, I think it's a pretty amazing puppet, no? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's wonky in a way that any 70s That's thing true. has to be. But yeah. I think it's probably be more effective and, and scary than I think the newer CGI sort of versions of that same monster. Yeah. You, you know puppet, it's not there instinctively, don't you? Yeah, but also I think the puppet, it's one of those weird things with filmmaking. I don't know if you agree, Benedict. When, when they're restricted by sort of bad props or whatever, they have to be much more creative with lighting and how they shoot it. And I think Alien, the first Alien, probably was the best shooting of the alien as a monster, making it scary. Yeah. And as it's gone on, they seem to be showing more and more of the creature and therefore it's less scary. Yeah, totally. Would you agree? Yeah, totally. And I mean, they did a man in the suit, didn't they? Alien as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Alien's use of shadows and of just showing... There are scares that I can think of and still be creeped out where you'll see the alien's head or whatever and it looks like a pipe or something like that. And it's just so perfectly done. There's a lot of good claustrophobia in there as well. But I I think the physical reality of the alien being there... Uh, really contributes to that a lot so yeah yeah, all agreed in there Josh Uh, he's got a couple of things he wasn't so amazed by he says he must be unused to horror films so like your comment on this Benedict but he found the stupidity of all the crew's decisions except Ripley broke the suspension of my disbelief often several conversations could be reduced to more or less Ripley this is a horror film and I'm trying to change it back to a space cruise by voicing caution and soon to be dead character but I have enough hubris to make the bad decisions necessary to ensure that I'll be dead by the end. <laughs> and he carries on. Some of the dialogue was awful. Many of the tense moments at the end were bewildering. Why did two characters need coolant <laughs> other than to provide another opportunity for the crew to split up? Why did Ripley go anywhere she went in the third act? There was a long period where she could have escaped, but ended up going back into danger, and I couldn't work out why. This is something which I've been wondering, because you see all these horror films, and you're a big fan of them, and there's so many sort of genre conventions and kind of rules i mean scream made fun of this as in don't go alone don't be the first one to leave the group or whatever it is because you're going to die and knowing all these rules does that kind of just frustrate you because it you know what's going to happen or does it in fact build tension because you know what's going to happen and you know that something nasty is about to occur but you don't want to see it I, I, I can't work out if it's an aid to the horror or, in fact, a distraction because you kind of get familiar with the rules that they're going to play out. For me, that is one of the strange thrills of the horror film is knowing the rules. So then if you have even one twist to it, it feels surprising. Because, I mean, people say about slasher films, don't they, that in that you're essentially willing this villain, this lumbering killer, to off everybody until you get to the final, the one character who's worth something, which in Alien's case is Ripley. Mm. Um so I do not mind at all when characters will go off on their own and make stupid decisions. Because to be honest, if I think of myself in that situation, I would totally 
do something ridiculous and get myself killed second or third probably this is <laughs> that's, what people, an inter- <laughs> that's an interesting little thing where would you die in the horror film well, people talk about this a lot like people say they, they find themselves actually in in the middle of a horror scenario without thinking about it like you hear a noise downstairs and you walk down but you don't even bother getting dressed you just walk down in your underwear saying, yeah. what's, what's going on no baseball bat <laughs> you're asking for it <laughs> the camera was there everyone would go no no don't go in there don't go down <laughs> uh, well good stuff uh, he's got a couple more things to add in uh, he just said the famous scene around the dinner table not giving it away just in case there's anyone who still doesn't know what that is uh, was much better in context I'd seen it on its own before yeah I agree with that yep. and even more amazing for the fact that the crew didn't know the nature of what exactly. was about to happen those reactions are real it. aren't they yeah you bet and I bet that free- <laughs> can you imagine that <laughs> even on a film set I bet that still would freak you out uh, he says Ian Holmes character Bill Baggins that is today is my 111th birthday there yeah, you go <laughs> uh, his character was unfortunately the only one who had a character he says I'm, uh, what are you talking sure about, about Ripley's a very mm-hmm. strong character well no? he says it's ironic considering who he turns out to be no wait the cat was good I'm surprised by that Josh as well are you saying Ripley wasn't a good character I guess in some ways she's more of a foil for the one because you need that balance don't you you need people who make bad decisions and pay for it and someone who by luck survives okay I'm rattling through the last things he says bonuses at a moment where the alien is suddenly and briefly discovered by a character in a confined space I couldn't help imagining a speech bubble above its head saying surprise (laughs) (laughs) I can picture that's a good point Uh, something about its movements and the fact that there was clearly a Toby Kebbell forerunner inside uh, the suit as we said provided a lot of unintentional comedy uh, particularly towards to the very end uh, yeah we won't spoil that bit uh, I now have a greater appreciation as well for Galaxy Quest particularly when Ripley Sigourney Weaver shouts rude things to the mother computer when it won't let her stop the self-destruct thing so that's Alien and Galaxy Quest and there are quite a few good parallels there mm. have you seen Galaxy Quest I haven't it? no really I've oh seen you've got to watch it scenes, but I haven't seen that's some homework for you to do and also just another little side comment I found out you haven't seen Lost in Translation I know that's oh, for me yeah Benedict admitted that one you shouldn't really have said that you've then. definitely <laughs> You've definitely got some homework to do the before is, your next you and appearance. I have massive black spots. <laughs> We're the host, man. Or oh, you <laughs> are, and I'm just here for the fun. Come work the Move it along. Uh, he gave Alien a B plus. Is that fair? I think it should be in the A's. Me too. But B plus, that's good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. There we go. And do you think that's a good entry level horror film for people? Because I think that's Josh said that was why he was doing it in the first place in his email. Um, this is one that is so recommended that it probably is okay for people who can't handle the nastiness. I mean, I'd say so, but I do think it is massively scary. I mean, it is one of the scarier films I think I've ever seen personally, and I've seen it numerous times, and there are still moments that will genuinely make me jump and creep me out. If you were giving it a Super Bailey booze today, what would Alien get? Uh, that would be higher than probably anything I've ever given. I'd probably go with something like a seven or eight. Wow. wow. How about that? Okay. I, I think Personally. it's a good, a good movie. It's just a really well-made great, movie. Yeah. And I think the fact that it's got sci-fi elements and a sci-fi world that's really well-made yep. and, and fleshed out, I think aids to it. So it doesn't feel quite like a regular horror movie. I think it's not focused on the horror. It is just having horror parts to it. Yeah, exactly. Nice. There we go. Well, that's all the stuff we've got for Ask Benedict this week. Do we have anything more, Phil? Just to say, if you've got any other questions for Benedict or or anything that he said from this little segment, do email in superbaileybros at gmail.com or you can tweet us at superbaileybros. Benedict, you're fantastic on Twitter. So if you tweet superbaileybros or Benedict, I'm sure he'll get back to you with a very very good response but not too detailed a response so that we have something for Ask Benedict <laughs> next <laughs> exactly. time you're on you get 140 <laughs> characters <that's Yeah>. right. <laughs> exactly so send that stuff in we'll hoard it up until we get Benedict backed and we'll have another session of Ask Ask Benedict Benedict <laughs> <laughs> great job okay Benedict thanks very much for joining us this week thank you it's Cheers. been a pleasure
Thanks, Benedict. Season 2, episode 21, over and out, isn't it? 21 episodes already, wow. I keep getting mixed things, because on some sort of aggregators, they say we have, like, 85 episodes, technically, that have been published by the Super Belly Pros. But there's, like, mini stuff in there, isn't there? Yeah, but they were still published, weren't they? I mean, even if you group those together, I think we're up to, like, 75. So, or even more than that, maybe. But anyway, who cares? (laughs) Thanks very much for sticking with us, listeners. Hope you enjoyed our thoughts on those random films this week. Definitely keep sending us yours to superbellybros at gmail.com or at Bros on Twitter. Listen out for Benedict's review with the director of Spaceship uh, that he saw at the London Film Festival. Listen out for updates on his Cannes coverage for the Super Belly Bros. Isn't that brilliant? And tune in next week for more movie reviews, what we've been watching, all that stuff. All the good stuff. Thanks very much for checking it out and we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Have a great week. TTFN. <laughs> Laurie, I was uh, perusing my local McDonald's recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is that you... our local McDonald's? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. But um, have you ever ordered... Well, here's the thing. I, I order the same thing every single time. Do chicken you? sandwich meal. Great. Seriously? Delicious. Mm, delicious. Chicken McSandwich. McChicken sandwich. <laughs> chicken McSandwich. <laughs> Which <laughs> one it is. But I'm curious. Have you ever, ever even been remotely tempted to order a fillet of fish? No. I think that's famously <laughs> avoided by everyone, isn't it? But then there must be people out there. They haven't, fish. they haven't cut it out of the lineup. Somebody wants fish, a and I'm just fan. curious. I don't. I don't think I've ever eaten one. I'm pretty sure our cat would enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't even know what it's like. Got the sauces on it or anything? It's a tough one because breaded fish is delicious. It I mean, is great, isn't it? But it's just not appetizingly put together. Maybe it's the sort of the rogue choice. You know, you were saying about me earlier that I don't do what people want me to do. Maybe there's like, that's what you, if you're a cool guy and you're against the curve, right? Or Go with a fillet of fish. Like, yeah, hit me up with a fillet of fish. That's right, everyone. Maybe that's what all, I said. Maybe it's all in the name, though. If it was called a, like, McCod. A McCod. That's a good idea. <laughs> then maybe people then, then go the with it The poster could say, oh, my McCod. <laughs> oh, my McCod. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Or a uh, uh, McCod of duty. No, I can't think of any others. Can you think of a good one? <laughs> no, that's all I don't know. But also, I made me think there's loads of places, like, that do food that just, I wonder who's eating it. Like, who's eating the pasta? Pizza Hut. Uh, I know. You know, I've not told you this story before, Phil. I worked at a company years ago, like five, six, seven. I can't remember how many years. It's anything to say. And we had a birthday lunch and we went to Pizza Hut, which I was personally quite happy about, right? Because I thought, yeah, lunchtime. Exactly. Lunchtime buffet or you can eat pizza. But the people I was with were excited because they could get refills on salads. And I don't think anyone (laughs) other than me ate pizza. But we went to Pizza Hut. (laughs) To this day, I still don't understand. And they all seem to get it because I I joined the team late and they're like, we're going to go to Pizza Hut. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, isn't it great? Like the salads. What? (laughs) Does anyone believe this? I feel like it's one of those crazy pill moments. I've never heard that before. So maybe, yeah, maybe they're filet of fish people. I don't know. It's just confusing. And there must be out there. If you're out there and you eat a filet of fish, what does it taste like? I tell you what I did have is one of their little fruit packets the other day. Oh, uh, the McDonald's. I've had the fruit packets instead of uh, fries before in an attempt to be healthy. What Did you wa- feel good? What, what a waste of time. No, I didn't. <laughs> Eating those little apple slices and grapes. It's terrible. At least you get a kind of sickly pleasure as you ingest <laughs> the last greasy fry. So there we go. Are we allowed to talk like this about McDonald's? I'm sure we are. We're not endorsing them. We're just sort of talking about them. They're doing all those adverts at the moment where they're apologising uh, because people say that their chicken nuggets have beaks in them. Have you seen this? Yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't I it? I always think if I was their marketing consultant... Why would you draw attention to yeah, that? Yeah, I think you would just leave, let it but let it be. <laughs> Do people people know what they're getting at McDonald's. They yeah, honestly exactly. don't care whether it's 100% breast meat. So, yeah, anyway, look. Is that, it? Is that everything? Yeah, that's it. Fill nice. the fish. If you need it, let us know.
I think. I think. Think. I think. Chris Pine. Brian? Chris Chris Pine <laughs> films. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Uh, no, it's fine. I thought you were going to react. Rodo. <laughs> oh no, what is it he says? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a good quote for the guy. 